This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There would be a state office for suicide prevention under a bill that has passed the legislature. Mental health advocates are fighting suicide on numerous fronts. They have even struck up a partnership with gun shop owners. Our health reporter recently profiled the gun shop project in Colorado. This idea originated in New Hampshire in 2009, and we want to see how it's working there. Kathy Barber is a senior scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health and founder of the New Hampshire Gun Shop Campaign. And to Kathy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. How did these two groups, mental health advocates and gun shop owners, first get together in New Hampshire? Um, let me fill you in on that history. First, I should clarify, though, that I'm not the founder of the project, but rather one of one of the founders. And it was very much a group effort between... Um, um, g- gun shop owners and gun rights activists and mental health and public health people. Um, so the way it got started was that there was a week, um, a one-week period back in 2009 where three people in like three separate incidents all went to the same gun shop and and bought a, a gun and, and killed themselves within a- hours of the purchase. And so that, that, that kind of got the attention of the medical examiner's office. It was sort of unusual that it would be three in one week at the same gun shop. And they contacted the gun shop owner, um, Ralph D'Amico, um, who's owns the, the at that time owned the largest gun shop in the state and was the um, he's the vice president for um, the gun owners of New Hampshire, the NRA affiliate in the state. Hmm. Um, a, a wonderful person. When he heard the news, he was devastated and and said, "What can I do? Um, what can I do to prevent these sorts of deaths?" And so um, a small group came together, consisting of um, suicide prevention people and 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 gun rights people, um, firearm retailers, a firearm instructor, um, and and general, you know. Um, firearm aficionados, um, to come together to figure out, okay, is there a role that gun shops could play in avoiding these these recent purchase sorts of suicides? And also, as we began working together and, and really understanding the issues more, understanding each other's perspectives more, we also thought not only is there a role for gun shops to play in reducing the recent purchase types, but also just in reducing firearm suicide overall. Recent, so that's recent, how it got started. Recent purchase types, meaning they go in expressly with the idea of buying a gun to, to commit suicide. And yeah. So if I had that intention uh, and was mm-hmm. walking into a gun shop in New Hampshire, what would I see that would change my mind? Um, it, it wouldn't be so much what you see, but rather what the... Um, what the person behind the counter is alert to in in working with you on your purchase if um you know we'd put together kind of a tip sheet take, taking together the uh experience of a number of firearm re- retailers um in terms of what are the sorts of questions you ask customers anyway what are the sorts of things that would be tip-offs that the person might be suicidal? And we kind of assembled that collective wisdom into a, a tip sheet to distribute to the 
um, to the gun shops. So that's aimed towards reducing those recent purchase suicides. Because, you know, anytime you go to, if you go to buy a gun, no gun is perfect for every use. And so the, the clerk is asking you, um, you know, what, how do you expect to use the gun? Um, to give you to give the clerk clues in in helping you with the purchase, and if the person is saying, you know, I just I just want one, that one looks fine, you know, if they don't have any specific uh, reason for wanting the gun, um, if if they're not interested, if they don't seem to have any experience with guns, um, if if they're looking tense, you know, like some. Sometimes there's absolutely no clues, and, right. and you certainly would never expect a clerk to to get inside the head of a customer. But sometimes the cl- the clues are pretty obvious. And so, um, in some ways, you are training gun shop owners to be a, a kind of first line um, mental health defense. I, I suppose are they comfortable with that role? It's. It's not like expecting um, gun shop personnel to be psychiatrists or psychologists. I think, though, um, gun, a lot of gun shop people already, already regard themselves as being that sort of front line. Um, and I, I, I know Ralph felt very strongly that if, if um, his policy in his store was that if a person uh, – had no experience with firearms, he would ask people to get training first before coming and 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 buying a, a firearm, mm, which which um, adds some time in between the the intention to to buy and the purchase itself. And so, what what would you say if you were a gun shop owner and and someone said to you, um, "Gosh, I'm I'm just not sure which which firearm I want." One option would be to say, "Go get training before you." You you buy something here. Are there other strategies? Yeah, that's cer- that's certainly an option. Just simply to buy time. If 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 you, if you're getting a really bad vibe from the person, just it, it's fine to say I'm, I'm not comfortable um, selling the gun to you. Um, there's you know people are under no obligation to 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 sell their products. Um, the, I think a lot of the emphasis of the project shifted, though. We said, okay, there's, a, there's some low-hanging fruit here to, um, to avoid uh, these recent purchase-type suicides. But a, a lot of our focus also moved to using the, the gun shop as a place to distribute education um, and information about firearm suicides more generally. And that's the posters and brochures um, that are aimed to the regular customer, um, since by far the, the the vast majority of the suicides are, you know, just with existing household household guns. And so to present um, that message uh, in gun shops in the form of posters, as you say, and I suppose that the fundamental question here is in the years since this has been in place, Kathy Barber, uh, has this made any difference in the suicide rate in New Hampshire? In terms of like posters in gun shops, you wouldn't expect would be a strong enough intervention to have to have an impact on overall suicide rate. That's sort of like the start of of establishing a new social norm. Like the the idea of the posters and the brochures is that it's saying be alert to signs of suicide in friends and family. 
And if a loved one seems to be at risk, is going through a horrible time, you know, really struggling with depression or going through a horrible divorce, um, then help keep firearms from them until they've recovered. You know, if it's if it's your spouse or your teenage son or whatever who's going through a hard time, think about maybe storing guns over at a friend's house if um, you know that that's legal in in, in New Hampshire. Um, or think about changing the um, the combination on the gun safe um, and and keeping that from the um, from the vulnerable person until they've recovered. And so there's an awareness um, aspect to this. And in terms of the interventions for those purchases that people make with the intention of of immediately killing themselves, any sense that there's been a, a dent made? On that, we saw we were keeping track of these recent purchase suicides by going to the um, medical examiner's office and reading all of the uh, firearm suicide cases. And in the in two thousand and nine, uh, in the two years um, before then, what we had noted was that eight percent of the um, suicides, the firearm suicides, were recent purchase type, um, meaning. The suicide occurred within a week of the purchase, and then in the next the next three years, we saw that that um, cut down to like two percent. Um, then, in the most recent year, suddenly it jumped up again, and I don't know what's I don't know what's up with that. Hmm. Um, when you see that, do you think, gosh, maybe this is just a feel good campaign? Well, I think what it is is, you know. What we're trying to do is is change social norms around saying, like, looking at at gun owner groups and realizing, okay, gun owner groups are really part of the solution on on the suicide issue. Um, they, in general, have a, a strong culture around safety, around protecting the family, and those values are very consistent with suicide prevention values, and. You know, we've we see very few accidental gun deaths in the nation, five or six hundred. I mean, it's still far too many, but but relative to the numbers of guns, um, rather few. Um, on the other hand, we see twenty one thousand firearm suicides, and that same culture of safety and protecting the family that's that's often a hallmark of 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 different gun owner groups. Um, it, it seemed like let's take those values and apply it to the firearm suicide issue um, and, and take a, a, a sort of a friends don't let friends drive drunk approach or a designated driver approach um, so that a basic tenant of firearm safety is be alert to signs of suicide in friends and family and help keep guns from them till they recover. Kathy, thank now, you the so very much. First, thank you so yeah. much for being with us. We really appreciate your shedding light on this. Okay. As Colorado moves down the same path uh, that New Hampshire has, Kathy Barber directs Harvard University's Means Matter Project, which educates suicide prevention advocate programs about uh, the links between firearms and suicide. Just ahead, the growth and growing pains of Colorado's largest church. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The largest church in Colorado didn't start out that way. Early on, members of Flatirons Community Church met at a high school. Now they gather in a building fashioned out of an old Walmart in Lafayette. It can seat 4,000 worshipers. But the growth has led to friction with the church's neighbors, some of them, and there's tension over some of its teachings. Flatiron's success is due in no small part to its services, which have the trappings of a rock concert. Here are church musicians covering Jay-Z's Empire State of Mind from a service a few years back. The teaching pastor at Flatirons is Scott Nickel. He's been with the church for a decade. Scott, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How does music by Jay-Z, Adele, I've heard in some cases, many other secular artists, uh, how does that advance what you teach from the pulpit at Flatirons? Yeah, that was my friend Tony uh, singing that, my friend Whitney as well. Uh, we we believe uh, that there aren't so many distinctions between secular and sacred, um, that if if there is a creator of the universe, all things belong to him. So we even believe that um, modern-day poets and philosophers, if they say things that are true, um, we want to capitalize on those things. And um, so you see even Jesus would do that. Paul would do that. And so we feel like we're following in that stream of pointing to things that modern-day poets, whether they be questions or whether they be statements that they're making that people can connect with and resonate with. And so music, especially out here in Colorado, is a great point of connection for people. And so we found for folks who, especially if they've come from a religious background where, you know, maybe it was a hymnal or whatever it was with a lot of words they didn't understand or spoken in a language that isn't what people use today, um, speaking and singing in a way that people can resonate with really helps us connect the truth that we're trying to bring to people. According to the Pew Center for Religion and Public Life, weekly church attendance by American adults has decreased in recent years. Uh, You seem to be bucking that trend. To the cynic who says you include secular music because it puts butts in the seats, Mm, uh, what would you you say? Well, I would say that um, we're not ashamed to try to attract people. You know, I mean, we have a message that we want to deliver. So um, we, we talk about keeping methodology as an open hand thing. So whatever will help us reach people, we will we will utilize. Um, but our message is a close handed thing. Um, so we keep this open, we keep this closed. And so, um, yeah, if that reaches people, I'm not ashamed to say that it does. I think at one point your lead pastor um, was quoted as saying, if you don't like loud music, you probably won't like this church. Probably not. Do you have some sense that this this concert environment and the, and the nature of the music being somewhat secular has driven some away? Oh, I, I'm sure that it has. You know, and we've heard those stories over the years. And what we realize is there's we're not all things to all people in regards to we may not be the church for everyone. We're not even actually trying to be the church for everyone. Um, there are lots of churches out there who are not doing what we're doing, and, pe- and they're effective churches as well. So we're trying to reach um, people who are less likely to go to church, back to your point of people are decreasing in their attendance at churches. Do you build a Sunday service like 
a, a rock concert? I mean, I, no, I think that's probably a bit of an overstatement okay. in regards to we we will sing two or three worship songs. Sometimes we will have you know the quote unquote secular song Jay Z like you heard or whatever, and then usually one at the end. And then Jim and I usually teach for thirty five forty. Last weekend I taught for almost fifty minutes. You know, so um, really the message is central. Church leaders will sometimes talk about creating at Flatirons an environment where members can bump into Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's one of our catchphrases. What does that mean, bump into Jesus? Uh, in a culture where a lot of people have had experiences where they've had religion or the Bible, Jesus th- kind of um, thrown at them, um, abrasively introduced to them, um, we, we just want to create an environment where people can say, hey, just come and see. Um, and maybe you and Jesus, when we deliver this message, will work out your stuff together. You'll bump into him and maybe your life will change. As opposed to it being, what, kind of force-fed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, the church bought a major portion of Lafayette Marketplace. This is a struggling retail center across the street from its campus. And some observers have argued that the church's role as landlord mm-hmm. clashes with its spiritual mission. Mark Benassi, a co-owner of Lafayette Music which is a tenant in that center, says the church acts too much like a business and Mm. in its pursuit of commercial interests has tried to force Lafayette Music to leave the center. And he's been really frustrated Mm. in his dealings with the church. I really believe in the Bible and, and, and what it preaches. And I find that place so offensive, so utterly offensive. It's an abomination, in my opinion. They're not Christians. Because Jesus said, if you believe what I say, you'll do the things I say. How do you respond and and square the church's role as a commercial landlord with what you teach? Yeah, uh, we were actually approached. The city has seen great and tremendous value by our presence in the city. And specific to that part of the city where we used to actually be located, our church used to be in the, we called it the old feed store because that's what it was. Now Jack's Mercantile is in there. Um, Jack's owner owned that entire marketplace and basically approached us and said, we, we don't want to be in this, in this anymore. Would you guys be willing to do that? The city really was eager to have us do that because they understand that we bring so many people into the city and have an economic influence on the city. And so, so the city specifically reached out on this point to Flatiron? The city, that we couldn't have done it without the city, you know, so we... Our desire has always been to make a positive impact on our community, and so we've been trying to uh, work with those tenants there, and we've been trying to bring in some new tenants uh, to revitalize that side of the street. Are you cherry-picking tenants and asking some to leave or not renewing some leases? We're not cherry picking anything. We're we're trying to be wise stewards of what you know that side of the street um, needs, and so the city themselves have uh, recognized that we have an ability to do that. And you'll see on that side of the street some new businesses have moved in, like Noodles, uh, Chipotle, some other businesses like that, specific to the traffic that we bring in over there. Uh, at least two businesses have moved out of Lafayette mm-hmm. Marketplace after the church declined to renew their leases. Mm-hmm. They say. And a church official told the Daily Camera newspaper last month that it's working with a new restaurant to move in. What are your long-term plans there? Yeah, we're trying. We're seeking other tenants, and we're seeking really quality businesses to come in there again to bring a positive influence and impact onto into the city. Tenants say that there has not really been an increase in in business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that we can't do is we can't control uh, the quality of somebody's business, so to speak. So we can present opportunities for people um, 
to have a nice opportunity to run their business, but we can't make their business effective for them. Let's take a break and then continue this discussion. We are speaking about Flatirons Community Church. It has uh, come to be Colorado's largest church by many metrics, and uh, we are speaking with its uh, teaching pastor, Scott Nickel. More on uh, its place in the community of Lafayette coming up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Scott Nickel. He is teaching pastor at Flatirons Community Church in Lafayette. That's in Boulder County, and it has become Colorado's largest church. It ranks uh, very high on many of the mega church lists uh, across the country. And um, how, how do you feel about that term, mega church? By the way, I'm always interested in that. <laughs> yeah, it's not my favorite term. Sounds like something from Transformers or something like that. Like we're out for world <laughs> domination. You know, it's not my favorite term. So the church has come under fire for uh, the stances that you and lead pastor Jim Bergen have taken on questions of sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, you once wrote on the church website that you were deeply bothered by the current culture war regarding so-called gay marriage and explained that you insisted on calling it so-called gay marriage because there are some realities we cannot redefine even if we want to. Uh, What would you tell a church member who said they were gay and asked you for spiritual advice? Well, it would depend on what they were asking for, but that exact scenario happens quite often. Uh, Let's say they're looking for affirmation. Affirmation for their sexuality? Sure. Um, So... We're affirming of people as created in the image of God. Um, as far as affirming behaviors that all of us struggle with, one of our catchphrases that we refer to all the time is me too. In other words, our belief is that um, we have a perfect creator. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as far as um, affirming any behaviors uh, that God has defined as being outside of uh, his good and best and perfect will for people, um, we don't. If you beam by affirming, say, yes, according to God, you should keep doing that, um, we, w- we would not affirm that. So Flatiron's view is that homosexuality is a sin. Yes. All right. And um, the legal landscape has obviously changed mm-hmm. a lot in, in recent uh, months uh, with the legalization of, of gay marriage nationally. Um, has that changed your perspective at all on the issue? No, it hasn't changed our perspective on the issue. If you can go back to our website, I think as far as 2007 um, and after, um, there are sermons that Jim and I both have preached specific to the issue of homosexuality um, before gay marriage ever really came onto the scene. Um, so our message hasn't changed during that time. You said uh, before the break, all things belong to him. Mm-hmm. And you were re- referencing you know, secular music and secular musicians um, so is homosexuality an, an exception to that? Well, that does not belong to him being God? Uh, no, I don't, I don't follow the question. Uh, well, when I asked you about secular music in the, in the program at Flatirons, you said that you encompass it because all things belong to ah, him. Ah, yes. D- does not uh, a gay person and, and a gay person's um, uh, behavior belong to him as well. Yes, sexuality does belong to him as well. Yes, uh, but only do all forms of sexuality uh, as the creator, right? Um, if there is an almighty creator of the universe, that's a big that's a big presupposition, right? Uh, then then he must be uh, in charge of all things, and so if he clearly defines things 
which we believe that he does in regards to marriage and sexuality and things like that, and then clearly defines what is outside of his will for that, then he's laying claim to that. Um, and then people will have a choice of whether they want to submit to that or not. There are a lot of arguments around this, obviously. Sure. And, you know, some people will say that is cherry picking, uh, you know, passages in the Bible. Because oh, sure. there's, there's a lot in the mm-hmm. Bible that you would not engage in today. You know, why believe that and not other aspects? Well, one of the things that we see is we see different covenants in the Bible. So we see an old covenant, we see a new covenant. So the old covenant was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so um, God has operated um, throughout history in those in those covenants. And so, for example, you know, people often refer to, isn't there something in the Old Testament in regards to not wearing clothing with um, two different kinds of uh, cloth, you know, like wool or, you know, cotton woven together or something like that? Or, you know, why do you eat uh, shrimp, you know, if you go out to dinner, things like that. And so we have dietary laws and things like that that we see in the Old Testament that um, even today practicing, you know, kosher Jews would still embrace, things like that. And then in the New Testament, we see those things being fulfilled. And so whatever we do or don't engage with from the Old Covenant is specific because Jesus told us that he fulfilled those things. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are getting some insight into what has become Colorado's largest church. That's Flatirons Community Church in Boulder County. In September, a trans woman named Melissa Chapman, who was a member of the church, told local media that Flatirons barred her from women's events. She left the church. The episode drew a fair amount of attention. Has that experience changed your view of transgender people or how you minister to them? No, it hasn't changed our view of people. Again, we see people as created in the image of God and highly valuable. Um, one of the things I was talking to one of your coworkers about the other day is that we believe um, that we want to live in this tension that exists between grace and truth. And we, we believe Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. John one fourteen says that. And so um, we believe that we want to uh, welcome people with open arms and say everybody is welcome here. And we also don't want to pander to people. And so um, we hold on tightly to what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says um, in regards to us being image bearers. And so um, if you were to walk around our church, you you would see um, transgender people. Um, you would see um, gay people holding hands. Um, you, you would see all of that. And so um, we've come to realize that what people are really looking for um, is truth and grace, both of those things. And so we welcome people with open arms. We try to love people as best that we can. And we walk through sometimes really difficult, messy situations with them um, when there's really, really difficult things to walk through. And that's what we walk through there. And so you're, you're pointing to a fundamental tension there, I think. And, and you have grace and truth, I think, tattooed on your wrists. I do. Yeah. Mm. I want to keep that in front of me at all times. It's a reminder to me as I teach to lead with grace and follow with truth. Attendance at weekend services at Flatirons averages more than 17,000, which is almost two-thirds of the population of Lafayette itself. Yes. On big holidays like Easter, it can top Mm 30,000. That's more than Lafayette's population. Mm -hmm. Some residents have complained that that has altered the small-town feel. And they say that as the church buys up retail property, as we've discussed— um, that you know, and if that falls under the church's tax exempt status, it could hurt the community because the city loses out on tax revenues. Uh, Z. Davis Robison and his wife moved to the community from Oklahoma nine mm-hmm. years ago, and uh, he opened a gift shop in Lafayette, less than a mile fl- from uh, Flatirons. Bringing fundamentalists into the area brings an ideology, ideology along with it. 
um, an ideology that I believe um, supports hate, you know, and having grown up in that kind of environment, it's kind of disturbing for me to see that happening um, in a liberal community where I moved specifically to escape those things. I mean, you will have eventually those people that go to church though or want to live close to their church. They'll begin to buy homes. They'll begin to get on city council. They'll begin to become the mayors. They'll become the decision makers. And so in my mind, it's important to stop that kind of growth before those types of things start to happen. Because when you look up and the city council's made up of Flatirons church members, then it's going to be too late. Lot to mm-hmm. unpack there, Scott. Yeah. First of all, I, I, do you agree with the label fundamentalist? No, and I I would point to um, the intolerance of those statements based on tip cultural terms today of those people. Um, if you were to apply that to any other group of people, uh, that would raise the ire of another significant group of people. And so I find it interesting, the intolerance of the tolerance uh, campaign that we have <laughs> going on at times. But this is nothing new, you know, and I can certainly understand that man's background coming from Oklahoma, which is kind of the buckle of the Bible belt, you know, and so I get that. And and I've come from the South too. I, I lived in Kentucky for a long period of time. And so that man's probably been in some regards, deeply wounded or hurt by some religious people. Um, I, I would venture to say I doubt that man's actually attended our services. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Um, we, we don't typically get that kind of criticism from somebody who's actually been there. Um, so that, that that would be that would be another concern, you know. Just briefly to that notion of the church being large enough that it could start to change, you know, the the, the politics, the complexion of Lafayette. Is that a goal that you have in mind? Well, we're a regional church, so um, like you referenced, there was a time when a significant amount of the people that we were ministering to were coming from kind of that East Boulder County area. Um, we reach people in Denver, Fort Collins, all over the place now. And so I, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate the impact in regards to, we have two services at our Lafayette campuses on Saturday night and two on Sunday morning, um, between four o'clock and 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. So it's not as if 30,000 people are, uh, coming down upon <laughs> Lafayette six days out of the week or seven days out of the week. Um, it's a pretty concentrated amount of time and we're really aware and we, we pay the, you know, police force to come out and direct traffic as over time. And we have our own traffic people and things like that. So we really try our best, um, to minimize that impact and make our impact of our people coming into town a, a very good one and a positive one. And I should say that Flatirons has a second location. It's added in Genesee and uh, also began offering services at Paramount Theater in downtown Denver. Very quickly, uh, future plans for growth? Yeah, we're always looking for future plans for growth. Yeah. For more locations sure. included. Sure. Thanks for speaking yeah. with us. Appreciate That's the time. Scott Nickel, he's teaching pastor at Flatirons Community Church in Lafayette. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe you read The Scarlet Letter when you were in high school. Now the classic tale of American Puritanism is an opera, which opens Saturday in Denver. Coming up, a conversation with the man who wrote The Words, a.k.a. the librettist. He's a former Colorado Poet Laureate. First, CPR's Brad Turner takes us behind the scenes of the latest work from Opera Colorado. A small army of seamstresses works inside a warehouse in North Denver. They're creating costumes for the Scarlet Letter. Pretty much everything is black or gray. (laughs) Puritan. A little bit of brown. That's Ann Piano. She's the costume director for Opera Colorado. 
It's just a few days before the first dress rehearsal, and the chorus, who play the townsfolk, still need their costumes. We will be here from the morning until the wee hours every day, sewing. We, we like to say, the speeding train is coming, so sew faster. <laughs> Everything, from the costumes to the rehearsals, needs to be fine-tuned by Saturday. That's when Opera Colorado unveils its premiere of The Scarlet Letter. During a recent rehearsal, the cast sings about morality and one law in the opening scene. It sets the tone for their Puritan society. Then the story's heroine, Hester Prynne, walks on stage. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote The Scarlet Letter in 1850. Hester Prynne wears a red letter A on her clothing after being convicted of adultery and giving birth to a child while her husband is away. Her Puritan neighbors in 17th century Boston scorn her and treat her like an outcast. First of all, you've got this beautiful young woman who bears a child out of wedlock in Puritan society. I mean, already that's pretty amazing and operatic. That's Lori Laitman. She wrote the opera version of The Scarlet Letter nearly 10 years ago. The Potomac, Maryland resident says she read the novel in high school but found it much more powerful as an adult. It was so ahead of its time in in showing how a woman could be mistreated, I'd say, by a community and how they can recover. At a recent rehearsal, a pianist plays the opening chords of The Scarlet Letter. The cast isn't in full costume yet. There are a few props, including dozens of Bibles and a scaffold. It looks more like a school gymnasium than an opera production. David Mason, the Colorado poet who wrote the words for the opera, calls Hester one of the great feminist characters in all of literature, full of dignity and courage. He says the story feels perfectly relevant. We are still in a time where we need to see figures like that, and we need to understand what it is that uh, confronts them and oppresses them in our culture. Uh, We're not as far removed from Puritanism as we might want to be. The characters in The Scarlet Letter endure a lot of misery, But the opera also finds space for a tender aria amid all the drama. It's when Hester comforts her infant daughter Pearl and croons, Nothing will harm you. Opera Colorado's creative team decided in 2010 they wanted to put The Scarlet Letter on stage in Denver. Greg Carpenter, Opera Colorado's general director, says they'd been looking for a work to premiere. The Scarlet Letter, he says, had the right elements. A subject matter that would resonate in our community, that it would be relevant in some way, and that musically it would be accessible. Three years later, Opera Colorado was set to bring The Scarlet Letter to the stage. But a few months before opening night, the company revealed it had a budget shortfall of about $700,000. Opera Colorado was struggling. That's not unusual in the opera world, where fundraising generally pays for more than half the cost of a production. Carpenter says the math was simple. Most classic operas cost about $750,000 for four shows. The Scarlet Letter would cost about a million dollars. That price tag includes new costumes, the new set, and the composer's fee. So Carpenter said the company decided to postpone it, not we're we're getting rid of it and we're not doing it, but postpone it and allow us to raise more money. Opera Colorado retooled its budget and set 2016 as the year to debut The Scarlet Letter. Even during the delay, some big supporters remained enthusiastic about the opera. 
Carpenter says there are donors who like funding a classic opera, like the Magic Flute or the Barber of Seville. But if you give them an exciting project to buy into, like the Scarlet Letter, suddenly they take a sense of ownership and pride in it, and that inspires them to a new level of generosity. That generosity doesn't surprise Mark Skorka. He runs Opera America, a nonprofit that supports opera companies and fosters new productions. Skorka says there's real interest among donors to help premiere new works that speak to contemporary audiences. Take the new opera JFK, which just premiered in Fort Worth. And this weekend, Stephen King's The Shining debuts at Minnesota Opera. Skorka says this growth comes in part because many modern composers want to work in opera. And some people do use the word renaissance, but renaissance implies a rebirth, whereas this is, in fact, a a bona fide birth. Skorka says it's also because opera audiences can be pretty adventurous. Many opera fans crave new experiences, like The Scarlet Letter. Stagehands raise one of the walls for the set of The Scarlet Letter. It's a stark, gray backdrop. Carpenter says it pulls the audience into the character's harsh world. They led very simple, godly lives on every aspect of it, including the simplicity of their homes, their clothing, and things like that. So the set really reflects that austerity. You come in on the fifth bar rather than the fourth bar. Right, because we're adding a bar. Lori Leitman, the composer, says she and the Opera Colorado team poured over every detail, down to Hester's vivid red A and Pearl's floral dress. She says the Scarlet Letter is a richer opera now than it would have been in 2013. Even with all of the disappointment of the delay and everything, I think everything worked actually to make it the strongest piece it could be. And I feel so confident and so grateful. Opera Colorado also has newfound confidence. Carpenter says they're already looking at new works, including a production next year that explores transgender issues. You know, I think that's where we've sort of taken a whole new view of who we want to be and are not afraid to just stand out there and talk about it. And for Opera Colorado, that new era begins when The Scarlet Letter hits the stage Saturday night in downtown Denver. I'm Brad Turner, CPR News. And more now from one of the opera's key players. This adaptation of The Scarlet Letter could not exist without David Mason, whom you heard there. Former Colorado Poet Laureate, he wrote the libretto, the words in the opera. It was his first time doing that sort of thing, but he says it wasn't much of a stretch going from poetic to melodic verse. And welcome back to the program, David Mason. Thanks, Ryan. It's really good to see you again. Nice to see you as well. You draw many parallels between writing poetry and a libretto, but what was uh, one of the biggest differences? Well, I suppose one of the biggest differences is that you're dealing with multiple voices. Uh, When I'm writing dramatic poems, I've written a few dramatic poems with uh, more than one voice. But when you're performing them as a poet, you're one figure on a stage. I now had to imagine how multiple voices could dramatize Hawthorne's words. I had to take a very dense prose style, um, uh, an ingenious prose style, and prune it down and then um, find another idiom, a simple verse idiom that could be sung. You call it ingenious. I remember reading The Scarlet Letter, and that wasn't the word I would have used at the time. I think dense is probably where I would have cited back then. Talk to me about 
de-densifying. De I'm going to invent words yeah, as a poet yeah, is on the program yeah. um, for, the, for the libretto. Well, Hawthorne's got a really interesting narrative voice because he's writing two centuries, more than two centuries after the events he's writing about. So he's got a kind of witty, urbane narrator who's looking back on events and constantly reminding you that he's looking back on events and, and describing them from a distance. Um, so I was aware that this was a story that floats in time in, in all of American history. And since we're further removed from Hawthorne, uh, the sense that this is a story uh, floating in uh, the, the space of American history um, is, is really, really important. What I first had to do was to break the novel down into its principal scenes. And I decided that there were six major scenes in the book uh, the scenes of most importance that reveal the most about character and conflict and that drive the story forward. And then I decided there were a couple of choral interludes or opportunities for choral interludes to suggest the passage of time and that historical space and the mythic space of America. Once I decided that, um, I, I made a couple of quick choices. Uh, I had to decide uh, how much of Hawthorne's language I was going to use. And in the end, I used very, very little, just a couple of quotes, uh, phrases of his uh, to suggest something of the time. Wow, that's um, so bold. Yeah. Um, it didn't seem bold to me at the time. It just seemed something that I had to do. Because and you had to make this singable. Yeah, Let's remind folks. That's, that's right. fundamentally that's what right. you have to do. Yeah. And when you're writing poetry, you want to make it speakable, too. So I do have that experience. I mean, I've been spending 40 years in the, the salt mines of poetry. And, <laughs> and you, you know, you don't want to write something that can't be spoken. Um, so when you're, when you're writing for singing, I think, it, uh, you know, there's not too big a leap. You talk about the passage of time and how to convey that so that it's not an opera that lasts, you yeah. know, three days yeah, you're yeah. sitting there. Yeah. And I'd like to play an example of that. You achieve it really through the chorus. So they are singing there, let years accumulate like trees. Yeah. Why was the chorus the right direction for the conveying of the passage of time? Well, and, and it's not just the, the chorus, but it's also what they're singing. They're singing about the, the seasons. They're singing about the forest. They're singing about the sea. Uh, and I wanted, to, I wanted that sense of what surrounds the town, what surrounds the community. So the chorus uh, represents the community that judges Hester Prynne, mm. uh, but the chorus also uh, represents the, the larger community of America in American time, in American space. Uh, so that sense of, of a group of human beings uh, is very important, but the sense of the world that surrounds that group of human beings is, is just as important. Speaking of Hester, you yeah. called her really one of the great feminists in literature. Yeah, what I mean is that she has absolute integrity as a human being. She is strong, she is witty, she's smart and beautiful. And really, compared to her, all the men in the book are, are dithering fools, um, except that I try to portray Dimsdale as a, as a man with some tragic um, weight to his character. Well, that's interesting, not to make them flat, one-dimensional, yeah. and just unlikable. Yeah, that's right. 
Uh, he's a tortured man. He's a tragic figure. And I think in some sense, even Chillingworth, the villain of the piece, has a tragic dimension, which comes out early in the, in the opera. So I want to get back to the music. Um, you reread Hawthorne's book to rewrite this, yeah. I understand. And as you looked at the opening scene, you saw a great opportunity for a very large choral number. Redemption is a, th- a, se- a theme in this. Uh, describe that scene. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, Hester has been accused by the community, and one of the uh, implicit c- c- accusers is the very father of her child, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, who's standing there uh, pleading with her to, to betray him. Uh, so at one and the same time, this man is asking her to reveal the name of the father, and at the same time, he, he dreads having his name revealed. So the, the redemptive curve of, Dim, of Dimdale's character, the redemptive arc of that character, is the, the process he has to go through, the self-lacerating process he has to go through to come to the moment near the end of the opera when he can actually reveal that he is uh, the man that the community's been seeking and uh, face up to it before his own death. Um, so I think that's the major redemptive theme of the opera. I want to point out, too, that in those wonderful excerpts you're playing, uh, you're listening to rehearsal uh, with gorgeous piano accompaniment. And what you're going to hear when you come to the opera is a full orchestra. Uh, and Laurie's been improving the orchestration over the past three years. It's going to be a lush, gorgeous sound. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with former Colorado Poet Laureate David Mason. He wrote the libretto, the words, for the new opera, The Scarlet Letter, which makes its debut this weekend. How did you understand your job as, as the librettist? Yeah, I, I, as it happens, I wrote a Ph.D. dissertation on the great English poet W.H. Auden, who uh, wrote very eloquently about, uh, about writing opera libretti. And Auden said the, the librettist's job is really uh, to give the composer dramatic scenes uh, and words for people to sing. Uh, Auden jokes that words are like foot soldiers. They're there to be killed off by the thousands. Uh, and we do, uh, on occasion, find ourselves having to cut some words. But um, my job really is to uh, make a gift to the composer of dramatic, intense scenes and hopefully lyrical, lyrically charged language that will inspire her music. And my job is also to stand back and let other people take over this um, this verbal contraption, the libretto, and do something with it. In cases of adaptations, I'm always curious if you feel that you had some <laughs> uh, communication. I guess this gets a little like woo-woo. Yeah. Um, b- beyond the grave yeah. with Nathaniel Hawthorne. No, and, I, and, you know, no. or, or some sense that um, you owed him something. I, I did have a sense that I owed him something. But I also had a very strong sense that I owed the, com- the composer something and, and the opera itself something, which meant that inevitably, like a, like a translator, I had to betray uh, something of the quality of Hawthorne's work in order to make a new work. And I had to give myself permission to do that. 
Uh, people have asked me if I was afraid to do that, and I can't remember feeling any fear at all. I felt simply the the great opportunity of creating something new. Do you, does he have relatives, living relatives that you know of? Uh, I, I, in fact, do not know if okay. there are living descendants of Nathaniel Hawthorne. One of his descendants was the librettist of um, of the first effort to make an opera of the Scarlet Letter back around the turn of the last century. Oh, my. Um, but I don't know. It would be very interesting to encounter a, a living descendant of Nathaniel Hawthorne. This might draw them out of the woodwork, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Have you been bitten by the opera bug? Will there be more? There are. There are many, many more. I've d- I had an opera playing in Seattle and San Francisco Last year, that played in Washington, D.C. This year, it's called Afterlife with composer Tom Chapullo. He's doing another one of mine later. And Laurie Leitman and I are collaborating on an opera of Ludlow based on a, my verse novel, Ludlow. And we have high hopes for that. And the, the incredible strife of Ludlow in yeah. southern Colorado. Thanks yeah. so much for being with us, David. It's a great pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. David Mason, former Colorado poet laureate. He wrote the libretto for the operatic adaptation of The Scarlet Letter. Opera Colorado is the first professional company to perform it. That happens Saturday at the Ellie Calkins Opera House in Denver. Find behind-the-scenes photos at cprnews.org. That's the program for today. I'm Ryan Warner with Colorado Public Radio News.